Thank you for tuning in to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. You're about to hear a live sermon, which was recorded at our 11 a.m. contemporary service. We are thrilled to share it with you. Thank you for listening. We continue in our sermon series, Counterfeit Gods. We're looking at these idols of our culture that we may not think of traditionally as religious. You know, even as we've seen the decline of official religious um, affiliation in North America, I don't think that people are any less religious. What we've done is we've taken our religious devotion and we've put it on secular objects and activities. And so what we see are are people are enslaved to the idols of our culture. The first week we looked at busyness. Last week we looked at leisure. Um, I got emails from a lot of CrossFitters. And they're they're like the wrong people to make angry at you. Like... They're all flexing on me, and it's just not good. Say a prayer. Yeah, by, by the end of this sermon series, I'm going to have like no friends left. It's just going to be. Um, so today we're going to look at family, and we're going to look at a passage from Luke that doesn't get a lot of airtime when we think about Jesus' teachings. Okay, it's Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. Jesus has some challenging words for us, so let us look. Now large crowds were traveling with him. And he turned and said to them, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he has able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore... None of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we ask that you might be our teacher in the next few moments. That you might set us free from worshiping the idols of our culture that are set out to enslave us, to make us captive. But Lord, we might experience the freedom that comes from you. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy begins his magnum opus Anna Karenina with one of the most famous opening lines in all of literature. It reads, happy families are all alike. Unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. What is Tolstoy getting at here? He's saying there are a million ways to be unhappy. Countless ways to be unhappy in this life, but to be happy is very rare. There's only a few ways. There are only a few ways to be happy. During the 80s and 90s when I was growing up, 
there was a movement to define and describe the perfect, happy family. They said if you did all the right things, if you checked all the boxes, you too could have a happy family. This abstract image of the perfect, happy family was described in in marriage books, relationship articles, on talk shows, on the radio. The image was constructed with the language of biblical family values, or I kissed dating goodbye, biblical manhood and womanhood, purity pledges, the saving of the nuclear family. These forces came together to describe and construct this abstract image of the perfect family, the happy family. And when your family did not live up to the idol that we had constructed, you only felt embarrassment, guilt, shame. And so you had to go out and buy more books so you could aspire to become the perfect, happy family. The funny thing is, for all this talk of biblical family values, if you read the Bible and the stories of the families in there, you don't see a lot of biblical family values in the Bible. Like, let's just, just follow me here. Let's start at the beginning. In the second generation of humanity, you have the first fratricide when Cain murders his brother Abel. And then the great patriarch of God's chosen, God's covenant people, Abraham, married to his half-sister. When they're barren for many years, they finally have a son, Isaac, and what does Abraham decide to do? He tries to sacrifice him. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. They have a bitter, bitter rivalry with each other, and then Jacob ends up deceiving his father and Esau and stealing his brother's birthright. He has to go on the run to save his skin. Jacob eventually has 12 sons. 11 of the brothers sell their brother Joseph into slavery. This is better than a Jerry Springer episode. In Exodus, the great liberator of the the Hebrew people is an orphan and raised in Pharaoh's house. The greatest king of Israel, King David, misuses his power, takes a woman who's not His wife has her husband murdered and then fathers a child with her. Then Solomon, oh, Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines. He's a busy guy. (laughs) The great prophet Hosea, he goes and marries a prostitute. And when she leaves him, God commands him, take her back as your wife. That's just the Old Testament. In the New Testament, The most prominent writer of the New Testament was the Apostle Paul. At one point, he tells his readers, it's better not to get married. And then Jesus says, hate your father and mother, your children, your brothers and your sisters. Biblical family values. The perfect family. These families are a lot like ours. Full of fallible human beings, people who are often given to selfishness, who could be mean-spirited. Our families are constructed and made up of flawed people like you and like me. And so in today's passage, we see Jesus relativizing the idea of family. 
He's saying, if you worship the idol of family, it will only bring harm to you and your family. It'll only do harm to those you love. And so in our passage today, Jesus says we ought to hate our families. Now it's important that we recognize uh, the cultural context in which Jesus is ministering and teaching in. You know, so if we look at the broader scripture, we know in the 10 commandments, it says, honor your father and mother. We know the general message of scripture is one of love. Love your families. So what is Jesus getting at saying we should hate our families? I think he doesn't mean literally hate. What he's being here is comparative. The New Living Translation translates this passage, you must hate everyone else by comparison. It's comparative. Also, Jesus is using... um, a common rabbinic practice of hyperbole. Do you know what hyperbole is? It's a gross exaggeration to make a point. I'm a huge fan of hyperbole. (laughs) Don't make an idol out of the happy family. God should be of ultimate importance in your life. Only God deserves worship. Do not worship the idol of your family. If you worship the idea, the idol of the happy family, it will only enslave you leave you feeling guilty. When somebody in your family wrongs you, you'll get angry with them. You'll, if you have the idol of family, you'll try to manipulate and get the people in your family to be how you want them to be. You'll hold grudges. But if you put God and Jesus at the ultimate place, then he will define how you relate to your family members because he will have ultimate authority in your life. So this means when you're wronged, you'll learn to forgive and show grace. When you see someone who maybe is choosing a different path than you would have for them, you'll grant them freedom. When God has created them as a unique and individual person. You'll learn how to love others as God has loved you. We have to take the idol of family out of the top spot and let God be there. It can be difficult to do this. I remember a scene from one of my favorite movies, Father of the Bride. Has anybody seen it? And remember, uh, their daughter, Annie, comes home at the the family dinner, and she has this big announcement. She says, you're not going to believe it. I've gotten engaged. You know, and uh, George, her dad, played magnificently by Steve Martin, looks like he's had a root canal. He just, he can't believe it. And then his wife, played by Diane Keaton, says, "Is, is that your wedding ring? She said, yeah, we got it at a flea market outside of Rome. The guy guy we bought it from said it was at least 100 years old. And then everybody is just absolutely silent. And then the film refocuses. And you can see inside Steve Martin's mind's eye, and you see what he's seeing. And he looks across the table. And there is six-year-old Annie with little pigtails. She said, Dad, I met a man in Rome. He's wonderful. He's brilliant. And we're getting married. Remember that? And Steve sees this little girl. It's his idol. And the humor, the comedy for the rest of the movie is his idol has to be destroyed. He has to let his daughter grow up. He can't confine her to being six with pigtails. He's got to let her go, let her become who she's called to be. He's got to let her get married. The film's message must have resonated with folks. It made, I think, over six times what it cost to produce. 
one of the biggest box offices of that year. We know how hard, how difficult it can be to let go of our idols, the idol of the perfect family. Our culture has made an idol of the family. The Barna Group asked more than 1,000 people to choose their most important relationship. Seven out of 10 people said their family was more important than their relationship with God. 22% said that their spouse was the most important person in their life. 17% said it was their children. Here's the problem. If you build an idol out of your family, it can't, it can't bear the weight. It'll, you'll begin to distort your relationships with those in your family. So take, for instance, some of the new fads in parenting philosophies. There's tiger parenting. This is kind of a, a tough love um, approach to parenting made famous by the Yale law professor, Amy Chua. In it, she recommends parents tell their kids, if you don't get perfect grades, you're bringing shame upon yourself and upon our family. In her book, Enjoyment and Play don't really have a place in the picture. Or then we have helicopter parenting, where, where parents just hover over their kids, constantly monitoring them. I hear people say, my whole life is wrapped up with my children. Is being intertwined with our kids preventing them from growing up, becoming functioning, flourishing adults? Or maybe how about bulldozer parenting? Those parents who bulldoze any obstacle that may be in their child's way. How's that kid going to learn ad to overcome adversity? Courage. I've been wrestling with the idea of you know, family, my own idol of family being a new parent. And like, you know, holding this new baby in my hands, all of a sudden I became ac acutely aware of how many horrible things could happen to my child in the world. And I felt so much anxiety. The flu was going around. He bumped his head at daycare, get him in concussion protocol. Does he have a temperature? So much anxiety trying to control. It's idle. So much anxiety was getting a little debilitating. I, Emily Wright, our former senior associate pastor, was in town and we went out and I kind of told her what was going on. I said, I'm really struggling with anxiety. And she gave me this, uh, she gave me some great advice. She said, something that you do regularly, Jeff, maybe it's when you drive your car, maybe it's when you send an email, start a practice that you say a little prayer for major and you release him to God. Say, God, I entrust Major to you. His well-being, his health, and his future are in your hands, not mine. That brought a lot of freedom for me to let go of the idol that I had, that I had created in my head. And as we break free from that idol of family, we allow ourselves freedom, and those we try to constrain in the idol, they experience freedom. For some of us, the, the perfect happy family comes from building an idol out of our parents. And in another passage that gets skipped over, in Matthew 23, Jesus says this, you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all students and call no one your father on earth for you have one father, the one in heaven. Don't call anybody on earth father. Again, we see Jesus using hyperbole to make a point relativizing the role of our parents, saying true parenthood is seen from God and defines everything else 
He must have ultimate importance. In my own experience, I could not go home until my early 30s and I would not get in a fight with my mother where either she or I would end up in tears. It was, it was traumatic. And my dad, of course, you know, he's a really mellow guy, would just kind of sit on the sidelines and say, you just fight like this because you're so alike. I said, that's not helpful. <laughs> I once talked to a mentor of mine and I told him this problem. He said, Jeff, He's a little bit older than me. He said, Jeff, I had the same problem with my father. Every time I visited South Georgia, I tried to turn my dad into who I wanted him to be. I had this idol for who he should be that I couldn't accept him. And our relationship was only made right once I could accept him for his own individuality, his own personhood, to set him free and not try to constrain him to my idol. The same thing happened for me. Can't change people. Many folks are trapped in anger at their parents because they never lived up to the idol they had created and we have to set them free. Jesus wants to relativize our ideas of the perfect, happy family. I know a lot of people who have trouble entering romantic relationships because they have this idol of their parents and no potential partner can ever live up to who their mom or who their dad was. So they're left in loneliness. Idolatry can devastate a marriage. Recently, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, who's a theologian at Duke, uh, retired. And he's famous for what he calls Hauerwas's Law. Hauerwas's Law states this, you always marry the wrong person. <laughs> His point is this, when you come up and get married, you don't even know who that person is you're marrying. You barely even know who yourself are. And you definitely don't know who they're going to be in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. You're taking this risk, this commitment. Can't let it be an idol. Just this past week, I had the opportunity to go serve at-home communion with this couple, members of this church, who'd been married for 60 years. It was so fun. I was asking, how have things changed? What has changed over those 60 years? They said, Traffic. Many of us have trouble in our marital relationships. We have deep anger at our spouses because we've built this idol. And when they don't live up to this idol, sometimes we get comparative. Why can't you be more like her? We get punitive. I'm gonna get you back for that. Or some of us get passive aggressive. I'm not talking to her. She said, thank you. <laughs> Oftentimes these ideas, um, these idols are constructed based on roles. See, we see that a certain person has certain physical characteristics or features, and therefore there are certain matches of roles that they should fit into. And these roles make up the idol. If you look back through human history, one of the ways that societies have oppressed people is they've said, because you uh, are this kind of person, you have this characteristic or this feature, then you should function in this role. Since you're a man, you should function in this role. Since you're a woman, you should function in this role. We see this in terms of race, gender, age, class, and family. This is where we get anti-miscegenation laws. Certain races shouldn't marry intermarry with other races. 
marriage rules. Certain families cannot intermarry. Think of Romeo and Juliet. Gender roles. Mom works in the home. Dad is the breadwinner. See, the problem with these roles is if we prioritize them over relationships, we confine and try to confine people to idols. We don't let them be the individual, the free person that they were created to be. See, we have to see that not creating an idol of the perfect family, but that we are part of the family of God. This weekend is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. One of King's mentors was a guy by the name of uh, William H. Borders. He was a pastor at Wheat Street Baptist Church in downtown Atlanta. And when Martin was a young boy at Ebenezer Baptist, Wheat Street was just down the street. And so some days when his dad was preaching, he would sneak out of church and he'd run down the street and go to Wheat Street and he'd sit in the balcony and he'd listen to Reverend Borders preach. I like to think that one Sunday, King may have heard Borders tell the story of a young black boy who was denied education, political and economic opportunity, and he was forced to beg for food at a white-owned mansion there in his neighborhood. The young boy goes to the door, knocks on it. The owner comes out. The boy says, I'm really hungry. Could I have some food? The owner says, sure, just let me fix it and I'll meet you around back on the back steps. So the owner fixed the food and then came out on the back steps and sat next to the young boy. The owner said, would you please uh, join me in prayer? Just repeat after me. The owner said, our father, and then waits for the boy and the boy says, your father. The man says again, our father. The boy says, your father. The man turns to the boy and says, you clearly heard me say, our father, why do you continue to say your father? The boy responds, well, if I say our father, that would make you and me brothers. And I don't think the Lord would like it, you making your brother come around back to eat. Friends, this is what it means to see ourselves as a part of the family of God, united in our own individuality, coming together as forgiven sinners, only welcomed by the grace of God. Not creating idols, but letting people be who they are and then accepting, forgiving, loving, because we are a part of the family of God. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that by your grace, you have welcomed us into your family. May we show each other love, not trying to constrain or oppress people into idols, into roles, but that we might be in relationship with one another and ultimately with you, seeing each other as part of the great family of God that you welcome us into. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. If you'd like more info about Roswell Presbyterian Church, check out our website at roswellpres.org.